0: O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Many years ago, when I was 19 years old, I had the great privilege of going to InterVarsity Christian Fellowships Urbana Student Convention. So I was there up in Illinois in the winter with 17,000 of my closest friends. And it was an extraordinary week of teaching with so many amazing, wonderful teachers. We had an hour of Bible study with John Stott each morning. We had teaching from Elizabeth Elliot and Luis Palau. We had teaching from Billy Graham. It was just an extraordinary time. So you can imagine my surprise when one morning, this small woman in her 50s walked out onto the stage And I'd never heard her name anywhere before. And she walked out and she did something very odd. She had in her arms a bundle of forsythia branches. And forsythia, we don't have a lot of in Charleston, but forsythia is a plant that has a mounding growth habit where it shoots off these streams of bright yellow flowers. And the thing about forsythia is that it just gets thicker and thicker and more tangled, but it has all these beautiful flowers. And so as she came out on the stage holding all of this forsythia, she began plucking flowers off of it, plucking small branches off of it, and really making a mess on the stage. And I thought, what in the world is she doing? And she hadn't said anything. And so finally, as she got to the end, and there were just a few flowers left and a lot of woody nubs, She said that forsythia is a plant that is beautiful when it blooms, but if you leave it unpruned, it will bloom beautifully for a short while, and then it will slowly begin to die. And that over time, not only will it stop blooming, but it will stop putting out shoots of leaves, and that in order for the forsythia to be healthy, it has to be pruned, and it has to be pruned pretty dramatically. And then she brought that to bear on what it means to follow Jesus. Lent is a season of pruning. And as we look at this gospel text that we have today, there's much that we can learn about that idea. And the context for today's gospel passage, you will remember we touched on this a few weeks ago when Justin was preaching. But the context for it is that the disciples have gathered together and Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And some of the responses are Elijah or John the Baptist. And then Jesus looks at them with that most important question and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it exactly right. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which is absolutely right. But that was sort of the last thing that Peter got right. It goes, goes a little bit downhill from there. And so as we look at today's passage, we can see that Peter's confusion about Jesus is in many ways similar to our confusion about Jesus and why we need the season of Lent to be pruned. So there are three things about this passage that I would like us to look at this morning, three questions. And the first one is where are you setting your mind? The second one is what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? And the third one is the one that Jesus poses, what does it profit a man to gain the world but to lose his soul? So where are you setting your mind? And here we can see with Jesus and Peter the exact dichotomy that exists in so many of our minds. So when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter is very excited about that. And part of the reason that he's excited about that is that there was a strain of thought in Judaism that when the Messiah came, he was going to be a great king. He would be even greater than King David, and he would extend the kingdom of Israel all over the area and that there would be wealth and prosperity and the romans would be kicked out and that probably the people that were on the ground floor with this messiah like peter could at least expect to be secretary of state if not vice president and they could look forward to a life of prestige and comfort and wealth and peter's like that sounds good and so he's all excited and then jesus says the son of man must suffer and die. And Peter's like, no way, you're not stealing my destiny from me. And so Peter, and this is pretty bold because he just said Jesus was the son of God. Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, 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 this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, which is pretty strong, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And is that not so often our issue, that we do not set our mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, on the things of this world. So Peter gets it right with his confession, but he has a worldly plan for power and for prestige. And living the way that Jesus lived to go intentionally to suffer and then to die that is not part of peter's plan and the trick for so many of us is that although we may have made a commitment to follow jesus if you look at the actions that we take day by day it's not exactly clear that that's who we're really following for many of us Following is mostly about following our own wants and desires, which we are so good at rationalizing. So that brings us to the second question. What does it mean to take up our cross and follow Jesus? And the great Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle has some things to say about this. He said, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in this passage are peculiarly weighty and solemn, they were spoken to correct the mistaken views of his disciples as to the nature of his kingdom. But they contain truth of the deepest importance to Christians in every age of the church. This whole passage is one which should often form the subject of private meditation. We learn from these verses the absolute necessity of self-denial. The absolute necessity of self-denial. If we would be Christ's disciples and be saved. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is nothing that flies more into the face of what our culture teaches us than deny yourself. Our culture says, get what you want. You deserve it. You deserve a break today. You deserve whatever you want, just go for it. But what Jesus says is to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, I think this idea of taking up our cross, particularly in the Bible Belt, is one of the misunderstood passages of scripture. Because when you live in the Bible Belt, if you were like me, you have probably said something like this at some point in your life, oh, Aunt Ethel, she's just so difficult, she's so strange. Every time she comes, something goes wrong. I guess she's just our cross to bear. (laughs) So we usually think of crosses to bear as being that relative or that co-worker or that situation, whatever it might be, and we think our cross to bear is some kind of annoyance, something that gets in our way of our self-fulfillment. But nothing could be further from what Jesus actually means here, because taking up your cross, the only reason that you would ever take up a cross is to go to your death. That is not a popular sentiment. And one of the other things that taking up your cross means, and I want you to either picture Jesus taking his cross, going to the Mount of Crucifixion or even think of the crucifer coming down the aisle today, part of what taking up the cross means is you must put down everything else. You cannot carry the cross and. It's a single-minded pursuit. It's single-minded like the devotion of many of the people that fought in the Revolutionary War as we welcome the society of the Cincinnati today to recognize The way that so many gave all that they had my sixth generation grandfather and his two sons all were killed in south carolina in the revolution by the british and people believed in that cause but this is even more than that jesus calls us to embrace carrying the cross And what he means by that is explained by St. Paul in that great verse, Galatians 2.20, which I would commend to you to memorize. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We can trade in that earthly life of selfishness and seeking after the world to trade it for the life that God made us for, when we were made in the image of God and made for gifts that he has given us so that we might have meaning and purpose in his kingdom. And what Satan would love to do is to distract us from that so that we get so involved in the things of this world, we miss God's call on our life. So that brings us to the third question, what does it profit a man to gain the world, but lose his soul? Now, this is a great question in our current culture, and sadly, our culture has lurched very far in the direction of materialism just in the past few decades. There's a survey that is done of entering college freshmen every year. And if you go back about 50 years, you will see many of the responses of why I'm going to college would be things like to live a virtuous life, to learn how to leave the world a better place than i found it, to help others, things like that. Listen to the top three goals most recently. Goal number one, to improve my employment opportunities, 91%. Goal number two, to make more money, 90%. Goal number three, to get a good job, 89%. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money. There's nothing wrong with having a job. But if that is all you think your life is about, and you think that is the only goal that makes any difference, then Satan is going to lead you astray from what Jesus calls you to do. There is a great quotation from the actor Jim Carrey, who some of you may remember who's had a very diverse career, um, becoming famous as the star of Dumb and Dumber, perhaps not a great way to be known, and then cycling through How the Grinch Stole Christmas and then ending up in Batman. So that's quite a career. Um, He was the first actor ever to be paid what was then the huge sum of $20 million for a single movie. But Jim Carrey, after having done everything and won everything, said this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they dreamed of so that they can see that that is not the answer and it does not bring satisfaction or joy. Bishop Ryle again. We learn from these verses the unspeakable value of the soul what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul these words ought to ring in our ears like a trumpet every morning when we rise from our beds and every night when we lie down we all have souls we just sang about jesus giving his life because of his wondrous love to save our soul we all have souls for which we shall have to give account to god that is an awful thought When we consider how little attention most of us give to anything except this world. The whole world cannot make up to a man the loss of his soul. The possession of all the treasure in the world would not compensate for eternal ruin. Treasure can only be enjoyed a few years at best and then must be left behind forevermore. Of all the unprofitable and foolish bargains a man can make, the worst is giving up his soul for this present world. Now, every occasionally a Hollywood movie actually gets the message of Scripture straight. And there was a movie that probably most of you didn't see because it wasn't a big hit at the box office, a while back that was called Bedazzled. And Bedazzled was actually a movie about the Scripture passage seen through sort of a fictionalized viewpoint. And in the story of the movie, there's this guy named Elliot who is the classic office nerd and he has a job and a faceless Carol and he feels like his life has no meaning or purpose and he's hopelessly in love with this beautiful woman who's in the office that he says hello to every day and she just ignores him and so finally one night he is visited by the devil but this devil is a female devil in a tight red dress who's very attractive and introduces herself and says, I am the devil with offices in hell and Los Angeles. And I would like to make you a deal where I will give you everything you want in exchange for your soul. Now, this is a time-honored thing in literature and movies. You can go back and read the story of Faust, which is about this by Goethe, or you can just listen to The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and it's the same thing trading your soul for something. But in this movie, Elliot is bedazzled by the devil, and he says, there are three things I want. I wanna be really, really rich, not just ordinary rich, but super rich. I wanna live somewhere beautiful and tropical and have people waiting on me, and I want to have Alison, this unattainable girl of my dreams, as my wife. And the devil is like, I can do that for you, sign right here. So he signs the contract to sell his soul, and he wakes up the next morning, and he is in this beautiful mansion in a tropical paradise. There are servants waiting on him. He's married to Allison, the girl of his dreams, and he's thinking, oh, this is pretty good. However, there's a catch, as there always is with Satan. The catch is, the reason that he's so rich is that he's the most infamous drug dealer in the world and there are 20 people out there who have contracts on his life who are constantly trying to assassinate him. He's married to Allison, but she hates him and is having a flagrant affair with one of the servants. So technically, he's gotten everything he asked for, but he is absolutely miserable. That is the way Satan works. C.S. Lewis gives us a clue about how this is actually supposed to work, about what does it mean to follow Jesus, to take up your cross, and what does it mean to lose your life for Jesus' sake? He says this in Mere Christianity. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be truly yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and your pleasure, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him— and with him joy and everything else thrown in. My friends, these three questions are so very important, and I want to return to our forsythia lady as we close today, because the forsythia lady, I learned, was named Helen Rosevere, and after she started talking, it was very clear that she was British. And she told us her story. She was born in 1925 to Sir Martin and Lady Edith Rosevere. She's from an ancient aristocratic family from Cornwall in the UK. And like many British aristocrats, she grew up sort of nominally Anglican, sometimes going to the village church and sitting in the front pew since he was the Lord there. And the one thing she remembered from being a little girl is that she had a saintly little old lady Sunday school teacher. And the Sunday school teacher would always have them pray for the children in India and talk about the need for people to take the gospel to India. And so that stuck in Helen's mind, but she grew up and went completely away from the church, lost her faith as a teenager, was a committed atheist. But she saw, because she lived in the wake of the end of World War I, all of the suffering and death that there was, and she resolved that she was going to become a medical doctor to try to alleviate the suffering of people in England. And that was a bold thing for a woman to do in the late 1930s, but she was brilliant, and she went to Cambridge and did medical school and did very well. But when she got to Cambridge, she found that she was so lonely, and that it was hard work, and that she didn't really feel fulfilled, even though she thought this was her life's purpose. And so one day when she was especially lonely, a girl named Dorothy saw her in the dining hall and came and sat with her and invited her to come with her to the Cambridge Christian Union for a Bible study. And over time, even though Helen didn't want to go, she wanted to have a friend, so she went with Dorothy, and over time as they studied the Word of God, she became intrigued, intrigued enough to go on the student retreat in 1945. And when she was there, she gave her heart to Christ on the last night, and the Bible teacher who was there made a habit of bringing Bibles to give to the people that he expected to be converted at these meetings. And so he gave her a Bible and wrote in the Bible, Philippians 3.10, with these words. Tonight you've entered into the first part of this verse, that I may know him. This is only the beginning, and there's a long journey ahead my prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of His resurrection, and also, God willing, one day perhaps, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death." And Helen didn't really know what all of that meant, but as she went on and graduated from Cambridge, she felt this tug on her heart to go to Africa as a doctor and to share the gospel there. And through a long series of circumstances, She ended up pursuing that and went to the Congo. And she was partially inspired by the great English cricket player who represented uh, not only Eton and Trinity College Cambridge on the cricket pitch, but also England when they played against Australia. And then he went on to become a missionary, C.T. Studd, who said, some want to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And Helen Rosevear bought into that vision, and she went to Africa, and she built several hospitals, not just by raising money, but by out in the hot sun, molding bricks and helping build them. She built three hospitals and a medical school over the course of decades, saving the lives of thousands and thousands of patients, and (laughs) preaching the gospel and bringing thousands of people to Jesus. But it was not all about of roses. During the time that she was there, there was a rebel uprising, and the rebels invaded her camp and took her and her fellow doctors and some nuns as captives for over a year, where they tortured them and abused them. But Helen kept her faith strong and believed that she was leaning into the last part of that verse that was written into her Bible about the privilege of sharing in Christ's sufferings. And when she was released, she went back to England and then went back to Africa one last time before coming back and investing her life in speaking to students, as she did to me at Urbana. But oddly enough, I met Helen Rosevear again my third year in law school, and she came to Emory and Atlanta to do a talk that she was doing all around campuses in the United States entitled, Your Training or You? where she was encouraging people, not to pursue just the world, but to use your training for the gospel, whether it be teaching Sunday school like the woman who planted that idea in her head as a young girl, or being a friend like that girl Dorothy in the Cambridge Dining Hall, or whether it meant going on the mission field. And I will never forget when she was giving this talk, she recounted driving on a motorway in the UK where she was very frustrated because it went from four lanes to one. And there were all of these signs directing you into this one lane, and then this giant sign that said, caution, men working. And as you've probably experienced, she drove past the sign and there was absolutely no one working at all. All of the traffic jam and all of that had been for naught. But she said when she looked at that, she had this sudden vision that that was exactly the state of the church and the believing Christians, that there was this work to be done that was hugely important, and there was a sign saying that they were at work, but no one was there. Everyone was off duty. She said there was a distinct absence of people taking up the call of God and being prepared to say, I will go wherever He's calling me. I will lose my life to find my life in Him. I will give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I will bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow Him." Helen Roosevelt could have led the quiet and posh life of a British aristocrat, pouring tea in Cornwall and having nice forsythia in the yard. But she chose to take up her cross and follow Jesus, and thereby changed the world just as that little Sunday school teacher did, just as that girl Dorothy did by inviting her. If they hadn't done what they did, thousands of people would have died in Africa, thousands of people would never have heard the gospel. So the question for us today is what about us? What about you? Do you want to sing with all your heart like we just did? You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Are you ready? To take up your cross, to trade what the world wants to offer for the real life that God calls you to, that you were made for. If so, join in this prayer from C. T. Studd as we close. Let us pray. Only one life, Lord, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, and joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life, t'will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, t'will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear that call, I know I'll say, Twas worth it all. May it be so for us, Lord Jesus. Amen.